The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you via the Secret Library Patreon. You can support the show at patreon.com slash secretlibrary. This is episode 113 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Donal Ryan, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that interview with you. Um, I want to encourage everybody to discuss the show, join in the conversation by tweeting me at Caro Donahue, checking out the Facebook page for the Secret Library podcast, or joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash secret library. And a couple things I wanted to share before we get to the interview are just that um, I've been thinking a lot about what we put between ourselves and our writing and what the world puts between us in our writing, which is often a more daunting thing to think about. Um, I wrote about that in the, the newsletter I share with subscribers this week, this idea of us having these obstacles that we have to deal with, and that we often feel like we're failing or like we're not doing a good job if we're not writing all the time. And if writing isn't our one thing, the one thing that we're working on most. But I keep thinking about the fact that we have to work and that for most of us, including Don O'Ryan, you know, writing isn't our main source of income. We have to find income in other ways. For many of us, we have children. We may have illnesses. We may have family members with illnesses. Um, all of these things get in the way and that there are so many things that we have to work around and sneak around and steal time from and that we have to make really hard choices in order to sit down and get uninterrupted time while writing. So I just wanted to acknowledge that and to say that if you're listening and you're listening to these interviews of people talking about writing books and publishing books and putting them out in the world and feeling like, wow, it would be so nice to do that. Um, it is possible. And at the same time, sometimes writing can be too much. And sometimes there are other things that you have to focus on. And that doesn't make you less qualified to write when there is time, or it doesn't make your story less important. In fact, I think it makes it more important. And that nobody, nobody, I say this to people in the groups and clients all the time, no one has ever picked up a book in a bookstore and held it and said, mm, I bet this person wrote this book over 10 years in five minute increments while sneaking to the bathroom to get away from everything else that was imposing on them. No one knows how your book was written once the book is finished. All they see is the book. So whatever time you can give it, whatever time you're able to give it, all of that is fine. Um, I just want to encourage you a little bit this week as I am buried in boxes and dealing with my, my big move across the world. Um, it, it, you know, all of the, all of this stuff feels like a big obstacle and dealing with this stuff has been my reason to not have as much time for writing this week, but I keep remembering that I'm moving somewhere that's going to give me more time and space to write. So sometimes there are these temporary setbacks. Sometimes these setbacks are institutional. Sometimes these setbacks are not so easy to get around, but the setbacks don't make you less of a writer. Um, sometimes they just make you a little more creative. And sometimes they just make you realize like, okay, if I don't write today, I can try to write tomorrow. And that's okay. 
So that's my little pep talk this week. And um, I will now get you onto the interview, which I think is going to be even more encouraging from someone who's much further along in the process than me. Donald Ryan is the author of The Spinning Heart, The Thing About December, A Slanting of the Sun, All We Shall Know, and his most recent novel, From a Low and Quiet Sea, is out this week. The Spinning Heart won the Guardian First Book Award and the EU Prize for Literature from Ireland and Book of the Year at the Irish Book Awards. It was also longlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Desmond Elliott Prize. Donald holds a writing fellowship at the University of Limerick, and he lives with his wife, Anne-Marie, and their two children just outside of Limerick. I loved speaking with Donald, just as I love speaking with everyone who comes on the show, honestly. But one of the things that I loved most about the conversation with Donald is, is how we get into just how difficult it can be at the beginning to believe that writing is worth it. It feels crazy. It feels like a crazy thing to do, taking time from other obligations and other things in life to write words down on a page, not knowing if anyone will ever read them. And I think his conversation with me about his books being rejected nearly 50 times before he was able to get one of them published um, is really an important one to remember that We all see these writers who've gotten through to the other side, whether they're publishing with a publisher or whether they're publishing on their own, they've gotten connected with an audience and it feels like that was inevitable for them or that, oh, of course, you've been long listed for the booker. Of course, your book was going to be published. It was always the case, but no, it wasn't. It took a lot of um, perseverance and believing in the face of what appeared to be an impossibility that this was worth doing. So I give you that interview this week with the hopes that you will believe in what you are doing and that you will take care of yourself and that you will take care of your writing self and yourself that is not writing um, in all circumstances and that this inspires you to keep believing that this would be possible for you too. So here we go with Donald Ryan. Hi, Donald. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Caroline. My pleasure. So... I wanted to get into some things about structure. We talked a little bit about how From a Low and Quiet Sea was structured. And I loved the way that you aren't quite sure how it's going to come together until it does. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the process of how you conceived of the structure of the book. And was that something you knew in advance? And then the ending was something you came up with later. I'm, I'm just curious about the thought process that went into putting the book together. Yeah, um, actually, with this novel, I I really did start with the, with the ending. Um, it was, I, I read a news report about um, a bus driver in the Cantabrian Mountains in, in Spain a few years ago, and something had happened to him. And I thought to myself, that's actually, even though it was a tragedy, it sounded like a good way to end a book. Now, I'm not saying that the end of the book is tragic, because... <laughs> I see it as quite a happy ending, but I just thought about the people involved in the situation and how, you know, these people could end up at this point in their lives, in this place. And it seemed, you know, I mean, endings do seem very often quite arbitrary. Um, and they seem sometimes to just materialise, you know, during the writing of a book. So it was the first time, really, I had an ending in mind, a very solid ending. And the ending itself seemed to be, you know, it seemed to me that it would function quite well just as a device, just as a way of, of bringing three stories together. 
because the point of the novel really was, you know, that, you know, we have these tumultuous lives, you know, and these, these, these things happen to us that no one will ever know about. And, you know, you can cross paths with somebody in a very kind of um, undramatic way and, and never realise, you know, the, the, the huge things that have gone on in their lives. Definitely. I think this is so tricky, though, I think. And I think you did it so well in the book. And for everyone listening, I'm being really cagey because it's so good. And I want you to immediately read it after you listen to the show. Thanks, so we don't we don't want to um, give anything away. But I also think that the way that it's done is worth discussing because it, it's so successful is that the sort of trope about an ending is that it has to seem both unexpected and inevitable. Mm. And I think that that's achieved here. But having started with an ending in mind, how do you still achieve the unexpected element sort of working backwards? Did you think about that at all? Or were you just kind of peacefully working on your book? Yeah, I, I tend not to overthink these things because if I do, I find that my writing becomes quite formulaic and I start to write to kind of, um, it, it becomes like a mechanism and each each sentence I write, you know, feels as though it has to, it has to in some way build up to this ending. And endings are always tricky, um, especially with so-called literary fiction and because very often, and understandably, people see the ending of a novel as the point of it. Um, and that's not always the case. And so a book can live or die in someone's mind based on, on the ending and how they feel at the end of it. And all endings are risky. Um, and I really, I mean, I've seen this book described as complete failure. And I've seen people say, you know, F this book. And this is, this is crazy. How can I end like Really? This? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. I mean, that, but that happens, you know. And I, I mean, it's my own fault because I am a, a forensic um, Googler of my own reviews. Oh, no. Yeah, all writers are, Caroline. People say that they aren't or are lying. I'm sure they are. Mm. And so, you know, it's always a risk. You know, people will be unhappy with endings um, and as many people as will be very happy with it. And so it is quite gratifying when people say that they find that the ending succeeds and that, that you know, that, that they like an ending. But for me, it's not, it's, that's not where a book lives or dies for me. You know, I, I've read novels that I love that pretty much fall off a cliff at the very end. You know, we've no idea what's going on. And it's kind of okay at times because that's that's when a novel really reflects life for me. I mean, we all have a definite end, you know, which is a terminal end for all of us. But I don't like the idea of things being tied up too neatly. And if, even though it's 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 novelistic, you know, and it's, it's a really strange thing. Um, I've heard this book described as too novelistic. And I don't really know what people mean, but I, I presume what they mean is that, you know, it seemed as though the final section of the book ties things up. And I suppose that that is, you know, that is a, a novelistic way of, of kind of, um, of telling a story. That's something I've heard as well, that sort of psychologically, people will believe a coincidence if it leads to something terrible. Yeah. But if something positive comes of it, then they're immediately <laughs> suspicious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people, people will say that. I, it's really interesting. I often hear people saying, oh, my God, that would never happen. That's ridiculous. You know, and, you know, that's one thing we can never say, because... If you pick up any newspaper in the world on any given day, you will read things you would never have dreamt about. You know, you will people will do things that you never would dream a human could do. And so anything's possible. You know, there's an infinity of stories. There's an infinity of actions people can take. And so nothing you come across in fiction can be unbelievable, really. No. I mean, you read things all the time and you think, oh, you can't make that up. I mean, there's a yeah. reason that's a cliche. Exactly. And I think the other thing, too, is that the possibilities in some ways are more endless in a smaller community. 
like the one you're writing about. Yes, there are people coming in from the outside, but it's sort of inevitable that people would re- be recombined in different ways as they meet when, you know, they're not living in a giant city. Sure. I mean, really, it's, it's basic mathematics, really. I mean, if you take a handful of people, even the number of ways that they can interact, you know, it's like numbers in the lottery, you know, I mean, just, 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 it's one to 46 and still there's like a billion ways you can combine these numbers. And so your chances of winning are virtually zero. And it's the same with any community, you know, big or small. And I think, yeah, definitely there's a kind of an intensity and a kind of a kind of a feeling of being cloistered and, you know, feeling of suffocation almost sometimes in, in small communities. And it can lead to things being heightened and, you know, things intensifying very quickly. Absolutely. So you, you had this ending in mind, you read the newspaper, and then you kind of worked backwards, I, I assume. Mm. How did that how did that happen and how did you start writing? Yeah, it was kind of a forward and back. I, I ended up with this point, you know, um, I ended up with this scene in my head, you know, involving the bus and the people involved. And it didn't really seem to matter then, you know, I, because I had three kind of, I had three separate stories in my head that I knew were going to form one novel. Um, and there's a friend of mine, she's a great short story writer and novelist called Mary Costello. And um, Mary said once, any short story can be a novel and any novel can be a short story. And she's right, you know, and I, I think that the three parts of the book, the three individual parts, any of them could be a novel of, of, of their own, maybe a bit thin plot-wise. And similarly, you know, each one could form, could be just compressed into a short story of maybe three or 4,000 words. But the, the, the kind of, the way they came together, you know, was done for me. And so I hadn't to worry about that. And so I could concentrate on getting these three guys' stories onto paper. And really, you know, the ideas occurred to me and I sat down and tried to make them coherent. And that's really how I approach writing in general. It's kind of all there is to it, really. <laughs> I know. It's one of those things where it's simple but not easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, sometimes I think it's, it's overthought and, and kind of overtalked, you know, the whole idea of having a process because it really is. I mean, it's, it's, what you said there is so true. It's simple and not easy. So which story did you start with? Did it start in the order, like, with Farouk first and then moving through to John? Or did Actually, you play the, um, around with I'd it? I'd written the character of Lempi um, years ago. I think in 2012, I wrote that section of the book. And Lempi was a vastly different character. He didn't really have any redeeming feature. He was kind of a sociopath, actually. He was one of these, <laughs> kind of, um, you know, local village kind of psychopaths who, you know... <laughs> commits these evil acts, you know, unseen and unnoticed, he thinks. Um, and, and I thought, God, no, this is too much. Um, I, I can't write a character this unsympathetic and this kind of irredeemable. So I kind of brought it back and I put more of myself into the character. And, um, you know, I just made him more nuanced and more forgivable, really, and just more real. Even though I really enjoyed writing this kind of psychotic, psychopathic character because, you know, you're, you're so free and unshackled when you write evil. To almost to be evil because you know you can you can ask a character to do things that you wouldn't dream of doing in real life, and there's a real freedom in that. You know, there's a real because you you kind of when you look into the abyss and look into the darkness, you know, and start to see things, you realise that again, you know, you're faced with infinity, and the infinity of possibility can really be it can be something that actually shuts down creativity, or if you kind of allow it and go with it and don't you know allow structures and you know shackles to be put upon yourself you can go anywhere but ultimately I think um, you know it, 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 that kind of thing's okay for first draft but you have to rein it in you know you have to kind of start to chop things out and bring it back to reality 
So how much did you chop out? I mean, because it's a very concise book, yet it contains so much. So I wondered how much more you explored about each character's backstory or their world or what else had happened yeah. to them in their lives. Um, well, yeah, because, I mean, Lumpy started out as kind of this, um, this he was a drug dealer and his day it didn't involve the bus he's driving. It involved him driving, you know, a shipment of drugs around the city. And he had various customers and he was quite sadistic in his treatment of them. So he was vastly, he'd be totally different. Um, but still, I mean, the, the, the core of, of Lempy's story remained. Um, and John as well, I mean, originally the book was, it, it, I had the three voices, the same three voices. Um, Farouk changed drastically as well in the writing, but it was originally structured as paragraph a paragraph. It was Farouk, Lempy, John, Farouk, Lempy, John. And even as I was writing it, I was getting completely confused. <laughs> and realized quickly because my wife and Marie reads what I'm writing, you know, in process usually, kind of day by day, and she was saying, "This makes no sense to me, you know, it's it's not coming together well." And that, that, that that's okay for the first few weeks or months even of writing a novel, but if it persists and your beta reader is confused consistently, you know, you're going wrong. But it really right. was just a simple matter of, you know, restructuring so that three stories were told in sequence. And it is, I mean, as I was saying earlier, it's, it's quite a simple, straightforward, unsophisticated structure. But, you know, I, but I do realise that when you depart from the norm, from the kind of normal, from what seems the norm of a, of a, you know, a single story told in a near fashion, you, know, you will lose people on the way. And I've often been lost myself. I've often read books where there's been kind of, you know, a, a, an unusual um, structure and I've, I've been lost. It's, you know, it's kind of left me behind. Yeah, no, I thought the structure was really clear. It was more that the the sort of straightforwardness of the structure allowed all of these other complexities to emerge. Yeah, I'm glad about that, actually. Um, I remember reading Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell and absolutely loving it. And, then, and you know, I'd finished the book before I realised that the first, the very first and last stories continued each other, and the second story and second last story and so on. <laughs> it was really ingenious. For some reason, as I was reading, I hadn't noticed this. And I think, you know, a structure... A structure works, I think, when the reader doesn't isn't too aware of it. Yeah, I think it's better when the structure isn't the thing leading the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I do tend to use structure some as something of a crutch, um, because when I was kind of in my my starting off phase as a writer, and it was it, it was ten years of a phase to be honest. It was, there were ten years where I just couldn't I, I couldn't ever feel happy with anything I, I wrote, and so for this ten years. My main problem was was pace. I could never pace a story or a novel properly. I always found I was diverging too much, and I was, you know, I was over describing, and and then events would happen, kind of, you know, in a very sudden, um, kind of unheralded way, and my pace was always all over the place. And it took me a long time to realize that I needed I needed a very definite structure, so that the structure itself would dictate the pace, and then I could I could just divest myself of any responsibility to pace the story properly and so it's a bit of a cheat I think you know to use any structure outside of the kind of traditional structures is something of a cheat in a way I don't know I don't know if it's a cheat because it is a choice that you're making yeah of course yeah and I think that I think writers do this all the time it's like we will say oh no no it wasn't that big a deal or, or whatever like we're very quick to um, dismiss decisions that were made that were effective yeah, I guess that's true, actually, yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm glad, I really am glad that I, I kind of found this 
this method of of not having to worry too much about the pace of a story. And I think it's something you know. I'm even thinking about the next novel that I'm that I'm writing, working at the moment. You know, again, I kind of have it divided up in in a certain way so that pace isn't an issue again. So someday, hopefully, I'll write a book where it'll be you know perceived to be in a traditional a traditional form, and it'll work. It could be. I think it's a worthy goal, but it may not be necessary. Yeah, maybe not. I want to go back a little bit to the beginning of your career, which you referenced, because I think. It's something that people will find inspiring to hear that, tell me if I'm getting the numbers right, but you submitted your first two novels and had them rejected nearly 50 times. Yeah. Is that correct? Before yeah, they were published? Probably and more then yeah, you went on to be long listed for the Booker Prize. So I think most people read the Booker and don't and, and forget about the possibility of the nearly 50 rejections. They yeah. just think, oh, you've been anointed and your writing career is preordained. And I think that's something for people to know, that sometimes you have to persist for quite a while before you oh, get yeah, to that point. Sure, you really do. I mean, the main thing that you, as you know yourself, the, the main thing that you have to persist with is the actual writing. You know, you have to make yourself be a good writer. You have to write and write and write, you know, and you will be, we all start out being pretentious. And someone said recently, <laughs> and I can't recall who, that pretentious is a great thing to be, you know, if you're starting off when you're young and you're starting off and you're, you you need to pretend to be the thing that you want to be. And that's how you become the thing you want to be by pretending, you know, by being somebody else, by copying other people. And you, you know, I think um, Kurt Vonnegut said it takes five years to write out your heroes. And my friend Julian Goff reckons it's 10. And I think he's actually right. I think wow. it, it can take 10 years, you know, to, to write out your bad habits and to write out your heroes and, you know, to kind of, to get the, the very clear echoes of, of who you love out of your writing. And to find your own voice, to strike your own note, it takes a long time. Um, and the whole idea of rejection, I mean, I, I expected reje- rejection. I expect, because I mean, I was selling novels or trying to sell novels into a very flat market. You know, we had, we had a huge economic crash here. And so I was sending out manuscripts to every single agent and publisher in Ireland and the UK and in America as well, actually, and fully expecting to be rejected multiply. And actually... I'd say the number is actually higher than 50 if you count non-responses because most people won't even respond. But I see, I hear young writers all the time saying, oh yeah, I sent my novel out and um, two agents said no, so I'm just going to forget it. I'm going to forget the whole thing. I can't, I can't believe my ears at this. Because most, yeah. I mean, most manuscripts will be rejected out of hand. You know, editors won't read past the first few pages unless they're totally gripped. And it's such a subjective thing and there are so many publishers out there but you know the biggest favor we can do ourselves as writers is to write and draft and redraft and redraft and just get it right so how did you know that you wanted to write because you didn't start out as a writer you started out in the law which many writers do it seems mm-hmm. um, and made the transition into writing full-time much later so what was it that it initially inspired you to start writing well, I've always been a writer. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the one thing I knew I was all my life. I knew from very young that it was what I wanted to be, but I, I, I still can't figure out actually how people are just writers from, from the time they leave school. Now, I know lots of writers who are just writers, you know, and they're young and they don't have publishing deals and they say to me, I'm a writer and that's totally fine. And, and I actually applaud them for, for making this bold declarative statement that they are a writer. But they always look hungry. They're always pale and emaciated. I don't know how they survive, to be honest. I mean, grants are hard to come by. 
I've never been able to successfully get a grant myself um, for writing. And so I knew, I mean, I knew this wasn't going to fly, you know. I couldn't just say to myself, or my family, or anybody else, I'm a writer, I'm going to be a writer. So will you guys support me and, you know, make sure I don't starve? <laughs> so I knew I'd have to work, you know. And so I worked for 20 years in the civil service. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, very recently, I, I, you know, I was in a position to take a sabbatical from that. And, you know, while on sabbatical, a job came up as a lecturer in the university, which, which is what I am now. So I don't think I'll ever be... Um, just a writer unless I have a huge stroke of fortune you know with some kind of massive movie deal or something which is unlikely to be honest you never know mm. but I mean it is but it's still no matter what I do on a daily basis the thing that I know I am professionally as a writer kind of always was amazing so what was what was the sort of transition how did you make it work while you were working full-time because I think there's so many people that have to do that mm. With writing, you can't just say, you know what, I'm not in the mood to come into the civil service today because the the story is really going well. So I'll see you all next yeah, week. Yeah. Like, how did you balance that until the writing was able to take more center stage? Well, I just decided, you know, when I was writing, I wrote two novels um, in my kind of mid to late twenties and early thirties, and Spinning Heart and Thing About December, and I decided, you know, in order to get these novels written. Um, I had to be disciplined, and so I decided I'll write each evening from nine pm to midnight, and I'll try I'll try my best to write between three hundred words and a thousand words, you know. And really, I just made myself do it. And then I got married, and my wife was very helpful in, in making me do it. You know, she really encouraged me. She pretty much said, "Look, just get out of here, go up to the spare room, and, and write your book." That's all it takes, you know. You, you have to see, I think it's very important um, when you're working full-time and you're writing as a, as a very much a side thing to break down the, the job into its quanta, you know, to, to say to yourself, well, I mean, a book's composed of words. I can write I can write a handful of words and I've, I've progressed in my book, you know. A couple of hundred words a day is not a big ask. Um, our own Anne Enright, our Booker Laureate, she's one of our greatest writers, she says she writes... 300 words each day one paragraph you know and in that way you get a book written in about a year and when you see it when you when you see it in those terms when you view it in those in terms of one paragraph a day it's 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 very doable it's very achievable you know it's not a daunting task but when you look at it when you hold a novel in your hand and you think jesus look at all those words and all those pages how the hell can i do that it seems a much more monumental thing so it's very it important to kind of to make it to make it seem easy and to make it easy in yourself and just carve out a little niche, you know, in the morning or the, or the evening of a couple of hours. That's all you need. Because I don't think, I don't think writing for more than three hours at a time is very good. I think after that, myself anyway, and going by what I've heard from other writers, after about three hours, you're kind of starting to get a bit burnt out, you know, and you can become a little bit monomaniacal, I think, if you're involved in one story for, for more than three hours at a time. Especially if you're writing an evil character. It could, yeah, for it could sure, do some absolutely. things to you if you're hanging out there for more than three hours. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. You might see it reflected in the rest of your life. Mm. Well, one thing also that I you said just now, I think is really important to acknowledge, which is the important uh, the importance of getting your family and the people around you on board with what you're trying to do. Yeah. I see a lot of people who are like, oh, I feel terrible. I have to ask, you know, I have all these responsibilities in my family and I don't know how I'm going to fit this in. And I think it's important to tell them that this is something you really want yeah, and sure. let them be supportive, which it sounds like you have. Yeah, I've been very lucky. I mean, my parents were always so supportive from a young age and 
you know, my wife and Marie has just been, I mean, really without her, and I, she's, she actually, when I say this, she gives out to me, she says, look, don't, don't say that, it's too much, but it's, it really is, I mean, I wouldn't be a writer without her, you know, I still would just be thinking, oh God, I'd love to be a writer, I, I, maybe I'll, tr I'll try again, maybe I'll try, you know, a new novel or a new story, but she was the first person who gave me real, real confidence in my work, you know, and, and kind of, and, and gave me the courage to send work into the world and have it judged by people and, and to have it rejected, you know, and for that still to be okay. And I think if I hadn't had that level of support from her, I probably would have buckled under the weight of rejection because, you know, there was kind of a tsunami for a while of just like pretty much every second day or third day, I was getting a letter in the door saying no or an email. And I think I probably would have given up if she hadn't said, look, they're actually all wrong, you know, and it started to seem crazy even. I was thinking, well, could it really be that they're all wrong and she's right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and she was so adamant and so insistent that it just kept me going. Yeah. And and she was right. We gotta give her credit. Yeah, well I think so, yeah. And you know what it's, it's but I always say to students here even, you know, it's so important to have a, a trusted beta reader, somebody who will be honest with you, you know, somebody who will take your work and might be, you know, it could be friend, a lover, an acquaintance, you know. It could even be a paid editor, somebody who you've actually paid money to read your work. And that's fine too. As long as you don't pay too much and you know that they're a good editor. But it's very important to have a voice, I think, of reason. Um, you know, to have somebody who will make sure that what you're doing is coherent, you know, and understandable, because you have to fix one part of your focus, I think, um, when you write on your ultimate reader and whether or not what you're writing is readable. And I often hear writers, you know, being really overly precious about their art and saying, you know, what comes out of me comes out. You know, my art is my art. It's inviolable. I can't change it, you know. And if the whole world doesn't get it, then that's the whole world's problem. You know, the art has to be pristine. And really, right, that's really... the other end of the spectrum. Oh, completely, yeah. And I disagree completely. You know, I think art, art to be consumed, art, you know, you create art to illuminate something about humanity. And, you know, it, it's for other people, really. It's not just for you. Right. And I think that it's meant particularly with books, but I would say with other art as well, as a form of communication. And you're trying to communicate exactly. an idea. And if you're just shouting a monologue in the street, basically, with your book, then how are other people supposed to take something from it? Exactly, Caroline. Yeah, you said it now. It's exactly how I feel about it, really. It is. I mean, it's a very sublime and beautiful way of communicating, writing a book. Um, but, but that's what it is. It's two-way street. And, and the thing is, you can't control how what you create is received, of course you can't, you know, so you have to really switch off from reactions, but you have to make sure that what you actually create, you know, can be consumed. I know it's, it sounds like kind of, you know, kind of a hard mercantile word, but you know, art is consumed. It is. And I think that that's, I mean, that's the point. I mean, I think that plenty of people write things that they never want other people to read. They write journals and they yes, of course. write to process for themselves, which yes. is fine. But if you're writing for someone else to read it, then yeah, you have to expect that they're going to yes. read it. Yes, exactly. So one thing I want to, I know I'm harping on this structure thing, but you, you did say it was a bit of a cheat, but also mm. you've just said that that you, the writer has to fix their attention on something. And I'm wondering if using things like structure to sort of remove decision points and that allows you to fix your attention on other things and then to really focus on those. Do you think that's possible? Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, you know, going back, just even going back to pace again, I, I very often find with novels, even novels I love, that they flag, they flag somewhere around the one-third point, you know, from one-third to two-thirds. And... It seems to be a common pitfall, you know, and the fact that the fact of switching voice, 
one turns away into a novel, you know, that, that the fact that I did that allowed me not to worry about the novel flagging at that point. You know, <laughs> people will say, of course, well, I don't, I don't like the center section. I don't like Lampy, you know, I prefer John and Farouk. And that's totally fine. But for me, you know, it, it kept it kind of fresh and exciting in my own head to have that, you know, to have that switch in voices at that point in the novel. And because, you know, if you're bored while you're writing a novel, it's very, it's very likely the novel is going to be boring for other people. So I think it's, you know, you need to stay engaged yourself. And if, you know, and if, if that decision, you know, is what helped me stay engaged, then so be it. It's, I think it was the right decision. I think so, too. I mean, I think also that there was a certain of that switch completely from a one, you know, from Farouk, who has a completely different story to Lampy, that you're thinking, oh, how is this going to come together? It ups the ante and then then you get to follow through and say, okay, if these, if this is not billed as a short story collection, I know these are connected in some way. You know, I am putting on my detective hat and thinking about, okay, these are presented all as a novel, so I know they're going to come together. So it builds suspense in a way so that you start to think about how ways that they could be connected, which I really enjoyed while reading it. Yeah, it's, I, and I love that myself, actually, when I'm reading a novel and... John Boyne said recently, actually, he was down here in UL, very kindly came to speak to the MA students here in UL, and um, he said the first thing he looks for in a book is whether or not it's a page-turner, you know, and he said when he was reading Joyce or, you know, so-called popular fiction, it doesn't matter, he said, you know, what you want is for the book to be a page-turner, um, and, you know, you need to kind of keep your reader on edge, you can't let your reader ever kind of just kind of be lulled into this kind of warm glow of just the words passing their eyes and it's all been very pleasant you know you need to kind of keep them engaged and focused on, on the story because because narrative is so important and it, it doesn't work if you kind of if, if you lose the reader's attention yeah yeah that kind of frustration of excitement and 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 not knowing is, is very important I think definitely I, th- I think that the things that can kind of pull you in that way are character and language but also particularly like what's going to happen. And I think that most people sort of are gravitating towards suspense novels or crime novels where there's mm. like very heavy handed plot as one way to create that what's going to happen. Yeah. But something like what you've done, which is simply presenting things next to each other, can just as easily introduce a how are these connected and can pull you in a completely different way, which I think is important for people to consider. I think it is, yeah. And you're right, actually, about the, um, the kind of crime and the thriller genre. I mean, these books sell, you know, in numbers that are exponentially higher than, than the numbers in which, you know, so-called literary fiction sell. And be- because of precisely that, because people are, you know, the, the whole idea of not knowing and thinking, what the hell's going to happen? It's so compelling for readers and for people. You know, yeah, it's it, sort of intoxicating. It really is, yeah, it absolutely is the drug. And you, and you really, when you're so immersed in a story and in, in the, what could have be, could be going on here and when you're when you're so immersed in the whole act of trying to guess what's what was happening and you're so desperate to find out what's going to happen all other considerations kind of fall by the wayside you know you, you stop considering the language and how it's used and you know and that, I think that's fine as well I think we definitely have um, a responsibility as writers you know to, to safeguard language and to use language well you know and to use it precisely but there's kind of um, you can kind of abandon these things, I think, very easily if if you're very focused on making your 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 reader, you know, guess what's going to happen. 
and I think it's nice to strike a balance between two things, you know, to have kind of to, to have the excitement and the edginess and the, the kind of the not knowing, but also to make sure to to, to pay attention to language and to, to use language well. Absolutely. I think there's this promise in a sense, you know, there's this promise that's set up in certain areas of the bookstore. You know, people go over to crime when they want a lot of plot and they want to yeah. feel kind of freaked out and, and pulled through. And then they'll go over to literary fiction if they want beautiful language and really deep characters. But I, I think there is a movement towards this sort of uber book, which brings both of them together. I mean, I'm seeing more and more of it. And it's really exciting to see. Like I think about something recently like Eden Lepucky's Woman Number 17. That is a literary novel and it goes back and forth between two perspectives. But the characters are so nuts and you know that this can't really end in, in a peaceful way. So the whole time I was reading it thinking, <gasps> you know, and it was a different kind of suspense. It was sort of a, a cringe yes. in advance suspense yeah. for yeah. how can this go well? And yours was like, how are these people going to interact with each other? Because they're, they start so far away from each other and yet they get closer and closer, you know, into an interaction. And I yeah. think that, we're learning to both expect more. I'm also seeing it in crime. Like you're seeing much more sophisticated char characters and and personalities and, and more literary depth being infused there. So it seems like everyone is maybe coming towards the middle in books in general. I think so. Um, a good friend of mine, Liz Nugent, she's... Um... She's pretty well known and accomplished. Um, people call her a crime writer, and I, I wouldn't personally put her in the genre of a crime writer. But you know, there's normally a kind of a, a central wrongdoing at the core of each of her books. But, <laughs> you know, she she writes beautifully, but still, you are absolutely gripped to the page because you just cannot wait to find out what happens. You know, and it's it's it's, it's a real skill. You know, she really has she she struck that balance so sweetly. It's amazing. And I love that. Yeah, I love the fact that we're moving that way because, you know, there was a time, I think, when plot was kind of abandoned and it was kind of a move towards this idea of anti-narrative. Uh, you know, what people say our own great fan O'Brien was kind of the, the great anti-narrative writer um, and the point that at Swim Two Birds. And I, I actually disagree because, you know, that, that there's, a, there's a story at the core of that book. There's a, it's got real heart, you know, about this guy who's, who feels he's let his uncle down and... You know, all these crazy images permeate the book and all these crazy things happen, but and it ends up back at the same point you started at, you know, and so it, it does have this kind of circular kind of feeling, you know, it does it does it does tie up nicely. It is very much a story. And people also say the same about Joyce, you know, they look at people say that, that Ulysses is just has no story and if it really has, it's quite repulsive. I mean, you know, it's 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 a huge book that's set over one day and it reads the story of loss and sadness and this guy who's so desperate not to face up to his own loss and sadness that he, he imagines being other people and other things for a whole day. But it does have, you know, it, it, it does quite, you know, it does have quite a a thrust, you know, narrative voice. Because you can't depart from it. I mean, it's just, it's so, narrative is so intrinsic to us and, and storytelling is so intrinsically part of being human that even when we try to abandon it, we can't. No, I don't. I think it's very difficult for us to abandon it. It's sort of how we understand the world in the first exactly, place. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one thought, and you were talking about your friend. If you ever have a need to start your own bookstore, I think you should call it a central wrongdoing. <laughs> yeah, it's a good name of it. I think that's great. Or I would like to see a section in bookstores started that just says there is a central wrongdoing in these books. <laughs> 
they might be literary. They might be a little more, yeah. you know, lighthearted. But you will have your central wrongdoing in these books. <laughs> I, I'm. I would be all over that section. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So you mentioned you're working on another book now. Yeah. Are, have you started? I mean, this is always the thing. You know, you've you've come up with something every few years. So you're definitely not one of the once every ten years kind of writers. So that no, puts you I in this position. Out, to be honest. Yeah. I, I I heard um, Stephen King kind of complaining a little bit about these one book every ten year writers. And I, <laughs> I mean, like how how slow can you be? I'm just write the bloody book for God's sake. I mean, it doesn't. It's not. It's not that big a deal to write a book. It really isn't. You know, if you have kind of an aptitude for it, you can you can train yourself to be, to be good at it, and you can you know you can just you can write the book. You know, it's 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 not a huge big thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stephen King definitely has perfected the the art of cranking out a book. Well, I don't know how he does it. Like like Stephen King's output is just phenomenal, and you know, I, I I've written I've read every single thing he's ever written. To be honest, because he's one of the world's great storytellers. I think he's fantastic. What? I mean, my books are fairly, are fairly thin. Um, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not very, they're not huge. You know, there's, there's no massive amount of labour in them. You know, the, the labour really is kind of getting, the, getting the idea to sit properly. You know, to get to pushing the idea into a coherent shape. You know, that makes an idea into a story. But I mean, you know, if you write between five hundred words a day and one thousand five hundred, you're going to get a book written in a few months. And when you have a serviceable draft, it's just for me that the main work is done. It's just a matter then of, of 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 making it, making it right, shoring it up, you know, and making it kind of um, making it readable. Yeah, I think that I mean that is what it boils down to. And again, we return to this simple but not easy because I think there is a fear underneath it. So maybe we can end with addressing this: that yes, of course, I could sit down and write five hundred words a day for a year. But what if at the end I just have total crap? Like, what if there's nothing salvageable in it? What if I'm an absolutely irredeemable writer? I know that this is a fear that everybody sort of has. And, you know, you're, you're, you've published a number of books at this point. So maybe that one's a little bit quieter. And it's more like maybe this one isn't any good rather than I can't do this at all. But how do you sort of trick yourself into believing, okay, yes, these words will add up to something worth dealing with? See that's the thing. I I, tell, I don't think I think every story is worth telling. Um, mm. I think sometimes people starting off maybe in their first book, um, they overreach. Um, I think people don't prepare enough. To be honest, you know, I do think you need to have a substantial grounding in in literature. You need to read and read and read. And I think very often, people start to write without having read enough, um, or without having read kind of carefully enough or deeply enough, and they don't consider language carefully enough I think you need to be immersed in it because I mean you know there's we have an alphabet with 26 letters and the fact that we can take those letters and do absolutely anything with them is just it's incredible you know it's pretty much infinite the possibilities open to us are, are infinite when it comes to language and what we can do and the stories we can tell and I think but I think really you have to make sure that the, that the raw material of words is is warm and malleable and workable. Um, I think if you don't read enough and if you're not immersed fully or deeply enough in, in language, it becomes cold and brittle, you know, and, and words won't sit naturally on the page for you unless you read and read and read. And it's not, it seems like a very obvious thing, but it's it's something that people forget. And the second very obvious thing that sounds like a truism, it sounds ridiculous to say it, is that you have to write. You know, you have to be a writer, you have to write and write and write, and you have to allow yourself to write absolute crap, 
you know, for a long time. And you have to know it's not great. You have to know it can be better, you know, and you have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until eventually, you know, to borrow from Heaney, you strike your note and you find that you have your voice and it starts to become easier and it starts to flow and you start to actually have this kind of, this kind of distant confidence that it's, it, it's okay, that this story is, is going okay. Yeah. And then even even if there is all of this against you and the feeling of getting lots of rejections to to really believe that it's worth it. Yeah, you have to believe. Absolutely. Um, you know, you have to be very cold and objective about your own work. You have to try to stand back from it and see it through different eyes. But you have to believe that it's worth doing. You know, if, if it's something that you want to pursue, you know, all you can do really the biggest favor you can do yourself is to just keep at it, you know, and to practice and practice and practice and to forget about this idea of being the best or being better than somebody else because, you know, the way we measure success is often very, is often close to ruinous, to be honest. Mm. You know, I mean, you have to kind of listen to yourself because I find myself very often I have a kind of physical response to what I do. You know, if something isn't right, it'll be there in my stomach. You know, it's like this all negative emotion manifests viscerally in our, in our, literally in our viscera. And you have to listen to that response from your body, you know, about, about your own work. Uh, you know, because you will tell yourself if it's not right. So you have to really listen and be really attuned to kind of, to, to your own motivations and, and kind of your own process. Definitely. Well, Donald, I want to thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And Everyone should go out and get from a low and quiet sea. It's really gorgeous. And I think you you will get, (laughs) absolutely. I think you will get so much from reading it and then listening to this and hearing him talk about it. It will really bring um, thoughts on structure to life, I think, as well as being a really good read. Thanks so much, Caroline. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.